Welcome. This is a first. I am streaming the Sunday night Bible study. I usually teach this in person at church and then I upload it the following day on Mondays. Uh, this is our series in the Gospel of Mark. We're just going to continue the verse by verse study. I don't intend to uh, do a different topic or something like that. I really like just plotting through the passage and picking up where I've left off the next time. So this is the Mark series. And uh, may, may I, by way of introduction, say my name is is Mike, not Mark. And I just want to clear the air on that because the truth is that in the comments section, ever since I started doing the Mark series, so the gospel of Mark, people think my name is Mark and I'm not offended by that, but I thought I should let you know my name is not Mark. It's Mike, but this is the Mark series. This is part 32. We're in Mark chapter nine, verses 33 through 42. That's what we're covering today. This is going to talk about unnecessary division, unnecessary division in the body of Christ, competition and self-seeking amongst Christian leaderships leadership people, people who are in Christian leadership, um, or another way to put it, pastors are not supposed to be CEOs and Christian leaders are not supposed to be like the world. And there are some real important differences there. And Jesus in this passage in Mark nine, he's like, basically he's like beating into the disciples, how he wants them to be so different than what comes natural. Get this. Then what comes natural when we start to step into leadership, we get weird very quickly when we get authority. And Jesus is trying to correct that and keep that from happening so we can have godly Christian leadership. Lots for us to learn in this passage. We're just going to read straight through the passage starting in Mark 9, verse 33. And we'll read right down to verse 42 just to put the whole passage loaded in our minds. And then we'll go through it verse by verse, nice and slow. And if you're joining me uh, live, which uh, you guys right now are, those who are watching later won't be. If you have questions tonight about this Bible passage... You know, usually when I teach this in person, we have a, a time after the study where we talk for like half an hour or so off camera and we just chat about the message, about the topics that came up, things that are on our mind. So if you have questions or comments about the study, put a capital Q next to it and we'll bring some of those in at the end after I've delivered the message and uh, and closed in prayer. Then we'll then we'll go to your guys' questions and see what uh, what fruit there might be from that. So, yeah. Let's get started. Here we are, Mark chapter 9, verse 33. And uh, I'm going to open in prayer since normally we do the praying before the video starts, but here there's only video. So let's pray. Father God, we ask that we would have wisdom in your word, that we'd have correction and insight. And if there's areas of our own lives that need to be changed, altered, that we wouldn't take it like we're being destroyed, but we would take it like we're being purified, like we're being corrected in these things. We ask, Lord, that we would be more and more a healthy body of Christ that our love for each other and our service to one another would be a light to the world to show them that you are real. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here we are, Mark 9, 33. It says, and I'm going to put it on your guys' screen. This is a bit unconventional, putting the you know verse-by-verse verse teaching like this, but I think it'll help you get it. Mark 9, 33, it says, they came to Capernaum. Um, there it is. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, saying, what were you discussing on the way, they were having a discussion while they were walking, but they kept silent for on the way they had discussed with one another, which of them was the greatest sitting down. He called the 12 and said, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all taking a child. He set him before them and taking him in his arms. He said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. But Jesus answered, do not hinder him. 
For there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your, your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone, him with, excuse me, let me start over. I have the New King James loaded in my brain, but I'm reading the NASB for the sake of the Mark series. Um, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if, with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. Now, it's true that this passage continues, right? Verse 43 on, it continues, which is one of the most difficult passages in the Gospel of Mark to teach. I'm going to tackle that next week. I wanted to take it as one section, the rest of the chapter. But this week, here we are. We're in Mark 9, 33 through 42. And we're going to go through it now verse by verse slowly. I think this is all one cohesive passage, including what we'll cover next week. It all connects together. And it has a lot to tell us about our our service to God um, when we serve other believers, not letting the flesh and carnality get in there and ruin it. All right, so let's start here in verse 33. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. That was the discussion. Um, <clears throat> I want to point out before we get further on this that the Bible regularly just gives you the flaws of what you would think as the protagonist people, you know, the heroes of the Bible. Their flaws are just shoved right into your face. And we see this in the Gospels. We see this in the Old Testament. We see it with uh, David and Bathsheba. Oh, my goodness. They could have easily swept this under the rug. But God, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he had the authors of the Bible put in the flaws of the people that you would think of as the heroes. Other ancient works don't generally do this. You know, we don't see like Israel's Israel's texts say how terrible Israel was. Read the book of Judges, right? It's just, it gets worse and worse and worse. You're like looking for a good guy at the end of the book and you can't find one because there isn't one. There's a bunch of compromised people. And so Israel's constant failure is getting carried away to Babylon, their sins, uh, the high places, sacrificing to idols, the failure of even one of the kings of the northern kingdom to be a good king. All this stuff are, are in there uh, because, well, for a few reasons. One, because the Bible's accurate. It's historically accurate. So it's just recording what actually happened. These people really were bad. They really made huge mistakes. Also, too, it gives us hope. When I see the, the, the failures and the sins of the people that are really used by God mightily in the text of Scripture, it gives me some sense of hope for my own life. Because if you live long enough, you realize you need that kind of grace, too, if you're going to serve Jesus. You're not going to do it without wounds or scars or regrets of your past. You're going to need God's grace. You're going to have to serve him by grace. And this gives us real hope because we're just real humans trying to trying to follow Jesus. And the third reason I think why we see the flaws of these guys is because God is the hero. Uh, the Bible is honest about the fact that only God is the flawless, sinless one. He is the hero. Jesus, of course, has no errors or issues, but that's because he doesn't have any errors or issues. That's why they're not in the text, because that's reflecting his true character. But the text is re reflecting man's true sin nature. We need grace. We need his kindness. And I find that encouraging. <clears throat> so I don't point my finger at the apostles here like, you idiots, haha, <laughs> I'm so much better than you. And I don't recommend you do it either. Uh, I think instead what we should do is we should look at their flaws as our flaws. We should learn from their mistakes like there are mistakes, and we should grow in that way. If you hear me clear my throat, by the way, I don't have coronavirus, but I do have allergies that have been acting up recently, especially today. So I'm all... <sighs> It's not coronavirus. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, that is the nature of allergies. Um, 
Okay, so here we go. Um, <clears throat> look at their conversation. They have an argument about which one of them is the greatest. Jesus overhears some aspect of the argument. He's aware of the argument, whether it's supernaturally or just from hearing it naturally. I don't know. And Jesus asks him, what were you, uh, what were you arguing about? Imagine the, the quiet that would have fallen upon the apostles at that point. Oh, boy, this is awkward. We were, uh, this is embarrassing. And I have to ask, how many of my own conversations or how many of your own conversations that you have with people would you be embarrassed about if Jesus like showed up and said, what were you just talking about there? I think this is good wisdom for us that we could learn from it and say, hey, everything we say matters. Uh, every casual word does matter. And there's plenty of times where we get so used to arguing about things we shouldn't, um, being carnal with our words, that we forget that that God himself is holding us accountable for every every stray word that we utter. And this is a is a good, healthy reminder of that. Um. Okay, let's look at the context here. <clears throat> Zooming out, Mark chapter 9, 33. We're in the middle of a very important section in the Gospel of Mark. And this section in the Gospel of Mark, to get us context, it's it's giving us not just random, displaced content from Jesus that doesn't make any sort of narrative sense in the flow of the book. Instead, we're getting, we're getting a, a clear um, unveiling of the truth that Jesus is going in his first coming. He's going to break Jewish expectations and he's going to die on the cross for sin. He's going to rise again, bring salvation to the world. He's not just going to come with one lordship coming to take over the world for the Jewish people, which is what they expected, right? The 12, <clears throat> the 12, like the normal Jewish people of the day, the, the 12 disciples, they're thinking there's only one coming of Jesus. Jews in general are thinking this. There's just one coming of Messiah. He's going to show up. He's going to be a military leader. He's going to kill the leader of Rome, you know, like those types of things. And he's going to, he's going to liberate and establish a political kingdom on earth. They just don't think in biblical terms here, right? They, they, they see all this information about Messiah, but they select out the second coming and they hold to that. And the first coming content, they just kind of go, hmm. I don't know what to, what to do with this, where to put this. There were even some who thought there were maybe two messiahs. One would die, one would one would reign because they were confused by the uh, by the prophecies. So they don't get it. They don't get it. The disciples don't get it. The Jews of the time don't get it. This section in Mark is revealing to us that Jesus does have a first and second coming, wants to die for sin and wants to come and, and judge that these are the two very different comings of Christ. So they don't get the worldly versus spiritual kingdom of God. They think it's going to be worldly. They don't understand what he's building spiritually. They don't get Jesus' sacrifice, and they certainly don't understand the sacrifice they're about to have to make when they proclaim Christ and are hurt, tortured, even killed for it. They don't understand that. They think they're going to reign, right? They, when, when Jesus talks to them in this previous passage as in Mark uh, 8 and 9 about how they're going to have to bear a cross, it's like this doesn't compute to them right away. They get it later. In Mark 8, 22 through 24, we have Jesus. He heals a blind man in stages, right? The, the blind man gets partially healed and then wholly healed. He has partial vision, then full vision. And this is just like the disciples, Peter, who in the very next passage, he has partial vision. He affirms Jesus is the Messiah. But then when Jesus says, yep, I'm the Christ, um, and then I'm going to die, Peter's like, no way, forbid it, Lord. Uh, and he denies that that could happen because he only has partial vision. He doesn't understand the full mission of Messiah. So he's he knows G who Jesus is, but misunderstands his mission. That's important. Um, then in 8, 34 through 38, Jesus tells them, you have a cross, you have to take up a cross to follow me. This is the self-sacrificial nature of Christianity, which when you get it as a Christian, you, you cling to it and you love it. It's a beautiful thing. It's an honor to suffer for Christ. It's an honor to take up your cross. You want to die to yourself and uh, live for him in this world when you get it. 
Then in chapter nine, um, they get this vision of the kingdom and it seems odd because here's Moses and Elijah with a glorified Jesus talking to Jesus, right? With his, I say glorified, I, probably the wrong term, the right term probably just be Jesus with his glory revealed. And there he is talking with Moses and Elijah, but you know, and they're thinking, Hoo-ah, yes, Peter's like, let's build tabernacles. I don't want you guys to leave. We're going to start the kingdom now. Let's take over the world. We got Moses and Elijah. We got the Messiah. Let's do it. But instead, they're talking to Jesus about how Jesus is going to die. He's going to soon depart or die for sins. So this is confusing. And then Moses and Elijah leave and Jesus is left. This is anticlimactic to them. This is confusing to them because we're getting revealed to us that there are two comings of the Messiah. Um, So verses 11 through 12, it talks about the messianic mystery that some are struggling with. um, And he gives them this riddle. This is just flowing through eight and nine. It's all about the first and second coming of Christ. Um, Then in in verses 11 and 12, Jesus is telling them a riddle, like a riddle of prophecy. Hey, how is it written concerning the son of man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? I could share, I'll share with you this verse. Here we go. Mark uh, 9, 11 and 12. They're like, hey. What about Elijah? Isn't, are we just set up the kingdom? And Jesus asks him sort of a riddle here. How is it written? Yet yeah, this is important. What's written must take place. So he's helping them to see what they don't see. There's a suffering of the Messiah. He's going to die for their sins before he comes uh, for the second time. So there's two comings. There's two comings. In fact, in uh, Mark 8:38, he makes it even more clear because Jesus has just told them about his second coming, right? When the son of man... Um, will be ashamed of him when he comes in the future, right? In the glory of his father with the holy angels. So this is, this is the lowly coming, the not glorious coming, but there's a future glorious coming. So that's, that's the context of all this. Um, why is this important? Um, because they're, they're still not getting it, right? The disciples still are confused about what Jesus is accomplishing and they're confused about what they're being called to do. They've decided to follow Jesus, but so far they don't recognize that means a cross and that means suffering. I can actually, let me show you this in the text, because even after these events, they're still confused. If we flash forward, we teleport to the future from the moment we are in the scripture today. Uh, Mark 10, 35, James and John, they're asking for, um, basically, they're, they're asking to be at Jesus's right and left hand, which means to rule and reign with him. This reveals that James and John don't know what is coming. They're confused. So, Verse 35, it says, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right, one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. And and literally they didn't know because they thought he was going to reign, but he was about to die. The guy on his right and left were going to be on crosses. And they think they're going to reign. So he says, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism? Which which, uh, with which I am baptized. And they said, we're able. And then he talks about how in the future they will suffer these types of fates. But, but again, he's talking about sacrifice and dying. They're talking about ruling and reigning because they don't understand the two comings of Christ. This is the great mystery in the gospel of Mark, the messianic mystery. How does that relate to today's passage? The passage today, they are asking the question, which one of us is the greatest? Which one of us is better than the others? Because they're thinking they're about to rule in an earthly kingdom. Who's going to have higher authority than the other people in the group? That's the question they're asking. And Jesus is like, you're just, you, you guys totally don't get it. You're totally and utterly confused. So here we go. Um, Jesus tells them um, the answer to their issues, right? They discuss with one another which one is the greatest. Well, um, here we go. Verse 35. Let me take us back there. 
And uh, it says, sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. This is an issue of sanctification. This is an issue of knowing what it means to be in leadership in the body of Christ and to, to, to have the right mentality, the like right paradigm for serving Jesus in this world. And it's utterly different than what the world does. So he just flips it completely upside down. Right? Not only is your timing wrong, not only is it, are you wrong that the, the reigning of the Messiah comes later right now is the suffering of the Messiah and the suffering of many people who seek to follow the Messiah. That's you and me too. Our suffering is in this season. Our reigning is in the future. But it, was, but it was more than that. Not only was their timing wrong, their whole evaluation of what it meant to be great in the kingdom of God was utterly wrong. They were into selfish, self-aggrandizing, self-promoting things. And here's why I think this is so relevant today. A lot of people in ministry today are like this and they self-promote and they're interested in, in bolstering themselves up, getting, getting more attention, getting more status, getting more influence for, for the wrong reasons. This, this is not an uncommon thing to see because it's a natural human carnal thing that we drag with us into our service to Christ. And it, it should be, you know, we should root it out and get rid of it, but it happens there. Um, Let's look at some parallel passages that talk about this sort of concept of the greatest will be a servant. Well, in Matthew 6, 1, we see Jesus using the, the Pharisees as his foil to show like the, the wickedness or the carnality, the wrong attitude for pastors and leaders and, and teachers and people in the body who, who really want to do a lot for Jesus. These types of people, here's the foil for you to see what you don't want to be like. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your father who's in heaven. If your goal is to be noticed, I want to be great. I want to be great. I want to be up, like exalted up in the presence of others. Then you have no reward for the service you do to God. Verse two. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. These people, they're doing it. What? So they may be honored by men. They're doing good things outwardly speaking, but the, the goal, the heart, is that they might be seen as great amongst men. He says they have their reward in full, meaning they get nothing from God for those for their service. He goes on, he says, you know, when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand's doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your father who sees in secret, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. He goes on and talks about praying, about how when you pray, you don't want to pray for people to hear you. Your goal is to be heard. I mean, I led us in prayer now. Jesus is not refuting uh, the idea of public prayers. We see that lots of times in scripture. Um, he's talking about the heart behind it, right? Um, if my goal is, boy, I really hope people think I'm praying good. Yeah. Pointless. No reward there. No reward. So the the idea here is that the pharisees are are the example of what not to be like what christians should not be like what christians should be like is christians should serve christians should have a heart of yielding to god um in lowly service to other christians you know humbly looking at any any leadership role you have as grace upon you as something you're not worthy of as something god's counted you worthy of like paul said and you just look at it as i'm so privileged i'm so honored that i get to serve in these ways and when you, when you love the people and you're serving the people, you don't get as bitter at the people either as a Christian leader. And that's important. But first, uh, first Peter five, three, Peter's giving instructions to the shepherds, the, uh, the overseers or the pastors, whatever term you want to use here, the elders, same, same thing. 
he says to them that they're not to act as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. So Peter's telling us like, hey, you are leading, but don't be lording. Leading without lording, I think might be the application. I want to be a leader, but I don't want to act like the Lord of, of over everybody. Lordship is not my role. Uh, my role is, is, is leadership. And the way you can test this is by being an example to the flock. And I think that this is a good test for us. Like you want to try to see, am I failing in my service to Jesus? And the, the, the answer is, um, if everyone treats people the way I treat people, will that make a healthy church or an unhealthy church? Sometimes leaders make exceptions for themselves. They can be rude and demeaning to people because they're in charge of the ship. You know, they're driving the ship. So they can be rude and demeaning to people. But they would never let other people treat other people that same way. Right? Because they're, but I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm the boss. Like, I'm in charge. So they can be cruel or demeaning. And this, the test to see if you're doing this lording instead of leading, instead of exampling, is that. Can other people follow my example and will that make a healthy, godly church? Or am I actually creating, would it, would it create a lot of division? And the, the truth is that people will follow your example. People will follow your restraint and your patience, or they'll follow your, as a leader, they'll follow your impatience and your irritation coming out. So that is pretty important. Uh, there are a number of sins um, and errors that come with leadership. Temptations that come upon you that you wouldn't have the ability to express very well if you weren't in leadership, but you have an easier way of getting this sin out now that you're in leader. One of them is the elevation of yourself above other people. Um, and this is like a false ranking of people in sort of like tiers or levels of, of godliness, of levels of importance in leadership. Like, you know, who are you that I would spend my time with you? Who, who are you that you're important? And, that, and I'm not talking about uh, pastors or leaders who are simply inundated and they don't have the time. Like I get emails, you know, at such a rate that I'm not able to answer them. No matter how important they are, I just physically can't answer them. I get comments and I'm not able to respond to. I get videos directed towards me I'm not able to react to just because of time. It's not because they're not important. It's just because of time. But this is different. This is about ranking people based on their importance. That's one of the issues. Uh, and why is this wrong in Christianity? Here's the reason why it's wrong. Let me take you to the scripture. Galatians 3.28 there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The reason why it's wrong to evaluate people based upon any kind of ranking system when it comes to the church, the Christian church, is that we're all in Christ, we're all representatives of Christ. How can we possibly say to someone who has Christ in them that they're lowered in value compared to someone else who has Christ in them. It doesn't make any sense. We're all sons of God. It's the status of every citizen. Luke seven twenty eight. Jesus kind of alludes to this himself. He says, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. The most knucklehead Christian you know, greater than John. John the Baptist. Why? Because we are regenerated and indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We are citizens of the glorious kingdom of God. And so we should treat each other this way. The status of every citizen is, is royalty in the kingdom of God. Every one of us. We're kings and priests. All of us. 
Um, now you might say, well, why doesn't it say queens and priests? Kings and queens and priests. Uh, because the king is the highest title. And we're going to give that to men and women across the board because it belongs to every believer. And so we're elevating everybody equally. It's actually um, uh, stronger that way. So some leaders forget this. They despise or they look down on the people that they serve. Sometimes pastors, when they talk about um, the church, they refer to sheep in a derogatory fashion. The sheep. Uh, sheep this and the sheep this. People are just sheep and this and that. And those types of attitudes, that kind of bitterness that comes in, it comes from not only wounds of the past, genuine hurt, times they've been genuinely injured by people in the body of Christ perhaps, but it also comes from um, lifting myself up as though I'm just better than everybody else. And that's a danger in leadership. You're so used to giving answers to people that you think that you're doing everything right. And that that is a, a dangerous flaw that I could fall into, any of us can fall into. So Jesus then gives them an example to drive it home. Let's let's look back at this passage. We are Mark 9. We're going to pick up now with verse 36. Jesus' example is in response to their debate about who's the greatest. So verse 36, taking a child, he set him before them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. So the example Jesus gives is of a child. Uh, I love this example, but I think we missed the point today. I think modern modern individuals missed the point of why a child is brought into this uh, situation. We, in our culture, we romanticize children. Uh, we really do. We have we have whole industries of, of, you know, products that are pointed at children that are just made for children. Childhood itself is like romanticized. But back in the day, this is not the case, okay? When Jesus grabs a child... He's grabbing an, an unimportant individual in culture. Now, not to say that not, the child's not important to the parents or important to the family, but as far as the culture is concerned, as far as leaders are concerned, spending time with children, not a big thing, you know, like not very significant. We romanticize kids and we, and in one sense, it's good. It's healthy. In another sense, we way, we way go overboard with it. We like, fant we actually fantasize about children like they're um, way more godly or pure and and wonderful and perfect than they really are, even though they have in on Christian, uh, the Christian worldview have incredible value being made in the image of God. But yeah, we do go a little too far with it. Um, but for, for our, for our sake, let's say that if, if Jesus told this parable today or this story today, this, this illustration, I should say today, I wonder who he would grab and put in the midst. Like, would it be a child? Would he be like, Oh, if, if you receive a child, then, you know, you, you're, um, you're receiving me. Or would he maybe grab somebody else? Like if you're a racist, I was going to say no offense, but I actually I don't, you need to get over it if you're a racist. But if you're a racist, it's the member of whatever ethnicity you carry very little, you care very little for. So if you don't like black people, Jesus, like grab a black person and be like, you give a cup of water to this, to this, uh, feed this, take care of, receive this black person in my name, you receive me. Whatever it is, white people you don't like, Chinese people you don't like right now, perhaps those are the people Jesus grabs and says, yep. Here's your example. Whoever's lower on the rung of importance to you. For some people, it's Arabs, right? Because Arabs, you, you think Arab equals Muslim. Muslim equals, you know, they're they're not going to be able to um, uh, be uh, be saved or whatever. You, uh, weird things I've heard people say about Arabs. Maybe Jesus would grab an Arab and be like, you receive him in, uh, in my name. You receive me. Or maybe it's a rich old white guy. Don't like those? <laughs> maybe it's a rich old white guy and Jesus pulls him into the midst and says, Receive a rich old white guy in my name. You've received me. 
or some boomer or right if, if you like to use that derogatory offensive term to people uh, or millennial some millennial that you think these millennials or this gen z crowd they're so blah 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 whoever the people are that you think are are less valuable less important that you care less for put them in the place of the child here you received them in his name you've received him that's the point he says whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me and whoever receives me does not receive me but him who sent me talk about elevation because this doesn't just say all people are are important rather this is saying that much more than that it's saying that ministry to any believer and i'm going to be specific here any christian that you minister to that you receive that you bless any believer it is to jesus that you've done that thing this does not apply the same to the world it's just the reality of jesus's words but it applies to christians your attitude towards christians and this is important because some of us we despise christians and we really sympathize with the world and there's an element of that that is actually carnality on your part um, that you need to you need to check and deal with but but ministry here to any believer is ministry to jesus himself another passage where jesus talks about this is in matthew 25 and here we are verse 34 jesus is, is talking about when he when he returns to judge speaking of himself as the as the judge of the second coming and it says then the king will say to those who are on his right come you who are blessed of my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world for i was hungry and you gave me something to eat i was thirsty and you gave me something to drink i was a stranger and you invited me in naked and you clothed me i was sick and you visited me i was in prison and you came to me but then the people are confused right because they're like wait we never saw jesus or did anything for him so they say then it says uh then the righteous will answer him lord when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink and when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you the king will answer and say to them truly i say to you to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine even the least of them you did it to me jesus is consistent with this that ministry to any christian is ministry to christ blessings to any christian help service practical things like visiting somebody whatever it is it is being done to jesus himself this elevates service christian service this is why who's the greatest well whoever's serving the most because they're serving jesus the most of course that makes them the greatest in that in that kingdom of god sense powerful stuff now i feel like we're not really constantly very good at actually having this attitude as christians and as leaders we often fall into traps like elitism elitism um the the the, the idea that uh, i'm i'm trying to be better in fact we rank people we rank people as not just more gifted in one area than another but rank christians as more important less important greater value lesser value we and we do this and this is worldly i think this is ungodly i think it's okay to have a sober evaluation of someone's gifts that person they're an incredible teacher in this regard that person's an incredible worship leader in this regard incredible evangelist that person is an amazing prayer warrior but not to rank them in association with their giftings giftings are secondary to our nature of being in christ so we don't we don't do that we don't do that but in some churches, the pastor is ranked ranked so highly that it starts to cause weird things to happen in the congregation. Uh, the idea is that the pastor is better than everyone at everything. 
I don't know what your job is. You're an electrician. I'm pretty sure the pastor could do better than you at that job because he's so wise and so discerning and so godly. Well, are you a bricklayer? He could probably do that better than you. You know, are you raising your kids? He could probably raise your kids better than you can. And he can do everything better than you because he's Superman, right? Because it's this happens in some cases. And I think it's unhealthy. Um, I think it also creates a persona that some pastors feel they have to try to pretend to fit. So they have to try to pretend that they're more than they are. And it creates distance between the individuals, the leaders in the congregation, because they're any kind, anytime this sort of elitism ranking goes in, it's also breaks, it, it kills friendships and creates distance that's unhealthy. A lot of weird things happen. For instance, and I'm just speaking from personal experience. Um, I've been doing ministry for over 20 years now, and I've seen a lot. And one of the things that I've seen in my own heart, in my own heart, as I confess it to you here, is I have for a long time, I viewed other leaders as competitors. You know, it was one thing if they were like uh, the, the senior pastor of a church and I didn't view myself as that, so I didn't view them as a competitor. But if I'm a youth pastor and there's another youth pastor, I view him kind of like a competitor. Like it threatens me a little bit if he's really good at what he's doing. And I remember seeing this in myself years ago and just like not knowing what to do about it, but just beginning to pray about it. And, and I actually reached out, tried to build relationships with the very guys I was feeling like I was competing with and to try to have like a non-competition with them. Like we just, just bless each other, just encourage each other, um, be excited about their gifts. Don't feel like I have to take people down a peg to make myself feel good. All these are carnal, carnal, um, body dividing, hurtful things that do not belong in Christian leadership. Another one of the things that comes into Christian leadership is wanting titles. Let me uh, take us to the words of Jesus since he's talking about here getting rid of the ungodly carnal leadership mentality that the disciples had going in and that many of us have when we step into leadership. Matthew 23, 6, it says, um, Jesus using the Pharisees as a foil again, he says, they love the place of honor at the banquets and chief seats in the synagogues. They love it. Oh, they love when they go to a banquet and there's like a special chair for them. Like, oh, sit here, so-and-so, you know, rabbi, reverend, whoever it is, sit here. They love it. They love the chief seats in the synagogues. It makes them feel good about themselves. And respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called by men, rabbi, rabbi. They like it. They enjoy it. Guard your heart, brothers and sisters, if you're serving the Lord and you crave titles and being called by titles. It's, it's just a symptom of an underlying issue that there's some way in which your ministry is really serving you and not others. And there's no reward in that. They love these respectful greetings. It makes them feel good. So Jesus gives another one of his very strong, very extreme statements here. And he says, um, do not be called rabbi. Do not be called rabbi for one is your teacher and you are all brothers, right? Because that this is about elevating some people above others. Don't do that. Be brothers. And do not call anyone on earth your father for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. And so this is again, same topic. Jesus uses the same phrase. The greatest among you will be your servant. This is exactly what Christ, I think, wants of us. Now, some would say, uh, does this mean that we can't even use terms like pastor or say rabbi, like if, if, you're, if you're in like a messianic congregation or something? And I don't, I don't think it means you can't use them at all. Okay, I do think that Jesus is using a, um, a kind of hyperbolic statement here. He does this a lot in scripture. There's lots of places where Christ does this. 
Um, we do see the roles and the titles used in scripture even, even after this. In James 3.1, it talks about not many of you seek to be teachers. And he says, for we, so he calls himself a teacher. Uh, Paul calls himself an apostle. Um, the term bishop and elder and deacon are all used. Bishop and elder being the same thing, ultimately. Uh, deacon also is used. And these are terms that are used to describe people. But you don't usually see people in scripture going, apostle so-and-so, apostle so-and-so, hey, teacher so-and-so. And and you don't see the title attached to the name as much. And I wonder if maybe there's like an example for us to follow there more. Um, I do often introduce myself as Pastor Mike when I'm doing online teaching because I feel like I owe it to first-time viewers to tell them in a word something about who they're watching because they're just like, who's this guy? So they know I'm a pastor. Okay, that at least answers some questions. But in, in none of my personal relationships do I ask anyone to call me Pastor Mike, although some people do, and I've never told them not to. Anyhow, I, I wonder exactly the right way to apply Jesus' words here. Uh, but one thing I'm convinced of, which, which is this, that if you have any ego tickling, when people use titles to, de to describe you, pastor, chaplain, bishop, reverend, whatever it is. If there's any ego tickling, that is carnal. If there's any sense of, mm, if there's any sense of elevation above others, that is carnal. That has no place in the Christian, in the Christian community. It doesn't belong. If you love those things, places of honor, chief seats, respectful greetings. Jesus put it, put it right there. He's just like, don't, 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 right? They love those things, right? Don't. This is the woes passage, right? He's just saying, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. This is problems for you guys. So um, so watch out, watch out. Now, I want to offer a caveat, which is this. Um, and we'll, we'll look at Hebrews 13, 17. Because I don't want this to be taken too far. Um, I like the term servant leader. Servant leader is a nice term. Um, but there can be a problem with it. And that is servant leadership can turn into servanthood without leadership where the people who are supposed to be spiritually leading you are only spiritually serving you, but there's no leadership actually happening. So that can happen. And Hebrews 13 helps us correct that. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief for this would be unprofitable to you. Now, maybe they're not perfect, but guess what? They're going to give an account before God. Your job is to walk in submission and yielding unless there's some grievous issue going on, in which case you may have to re reject or even re rebel in a sense there's a proper place for it but the general rule is obey the leaders and submit to them that's the general rule now if you're going to obey and submit to them that means they're actually leading they're actually making decisions they're actually calling shots they're actually giving instructions so servant leaderhood doesn't mean servanthood there's a leadership quality that does need to happen with those in authority that's one caveat i want to give you the other caveat is this don't let this be your excuse to harshly judge leaders. Now, some of you, you're not, you're not in leadership or you used to be in leadership. Sometimes the meanest people towards leaders are former leaders. <laughs> um, it's just true where you can become so critical of each other. And, and this is meant to be a self-reflective. This Bible study should get you to reflect on your own heart, on your own life. It's not about you pointing out everyone else's flaws. It's about you moving forward, being a representative of Christ, correcting people if you have an opportunity, but mainly get that plank out of your eye if there's application to you. Don't become that person who's just a harsh, harsh judge of, of Christians and leaders. Because guess what? When you harshly, too harshly judge leaders, you're too harshly judging Jesus, right? Because if the least of these, if you, how you treat them is how you treat Jesus, then certainly that applies to leaders as well. And if I mistreat my leaders and if I abuse them, speak gossip behind their backs and all this, I'm doing that to Jesus just the same. So there's a, there, there's a, a, a word of caution for us to not, not go too far with this thing. I'm not trying to give you an excuse to feel bitter. 
towards people. I want us to have the wisdom Jesus gives us here. So there is a great danger in Christians being worldly and in leaders being like worldly leaders where Christian pastors act like CEOs um, in an ungodly sense and that we don't want. So back to this passage in Mark, Mark 9, 38. So this kind of launches right off of the last thing. Uh, Jesus is like, hey, whoever receives this person, this child in my name. So this is making the disciples now ask a new question about like anybody can can like be honoring and serving you, Jesus. Um, so he brings up a situation that came up recently with them. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. But Jesus answered, do not hinder him. For there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. Um, so this is this is speaking, I think, of the organic growth of the church. There's Jesus is preaching. He's got his 12 and they've got a pretty good beat on everything. They are the 12. Like these are the guys, right? They're in they're in charge of a lot already right now. And they meet someone else casting out a demon in Jesus's name. And they're like, hey, hey, you're not part of our group. You're not one of the special selected. Just stop. <laughs> Just stop. I wonder what effect it had on him when he heard that. I wonder if he did stop. I don't know. We don't know the story. We don't know what kind of issues he had later on because of this encounter. Um, hopefully God just used it in his life to, to grow his his character, I hope. But but this is speaking to the organic growth of the church, right? The The organic growth of Christianity always outpaces the organizational growth of Christianity, which is why there's a lot of different denominations and different groups. One of the reasons why. One is division. Another reason is because Christianity grows faster than your group grows. That's the reason why. The disciples had to be ready to accept this. They couldn't think that only people who are like them are good and right Christians. When they met Paul the Apostle, and he, totally outside their circle, he's preaching Jesus, people are getting saved, he's doing great ministry work, they had to be willing to accept him and not be like, hey, you're not one of us. No, they had to realize that the work of God is bigger than their, than their giant, important ministry. It's actually a lot bigger than that. When they met Apollos and found this guy, Apollos, who was preaching Jesus, but he was getting some stuff wrong, right? And so but he's, they pull him aside, you know, and they, they help give him uh, more information. And the, then he's out doing the, doing the work, but he's not really part of Paul's group. He's not really part of the apostles' group. He's, he's just part of Jesus' group. When, when later in the book of Acts, they find out about random groups of Christians, like in Damascus or in whatever city, that are just, there's a bunch of Gentiles praising Jesus. And the disciples go there and they're like, wow, look, you are. This Christian thing's bigger than our ministry. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it's a lot bigger, and its reach is a lot bigger than our reach. That's the reality of it. So there's an obstacle that comes up, and this is what this passage, this passage isn't just for them, it's for us, right? Well, the obstacle that comes up is suspicion. Suspicion when people aren't part of your approved circle. Um, yes, the church is big, and the church is varied, and we have to learn this. And it can be difficult to learn because it's uncomfortable when people just look a little different than you, or they worship different than you, uh, maybe the music they're using is different, maybe their preaching styles are different, maybe their order of service is different, they still have the same Jesus, they still have the same Bible, they're still seeming to speak the truth of Christianity, but it's different. You know, it's not the same. It's not really the same. So we can get suspicious, suspicious. I remember, true story, um, I won't tell you what church, because I, 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 that's not the point. But it was a Calvary Chapel. Um, there was a Calvary Chapel worship leader who'd been leading worship for years and years and years. And he decided to move out of state. And he, so he moved up out of state to a different location. And there he is in this new state. And 
um, there was some talk about how he left. He had been the worship leader for like 20, 30 years at this one church, and then he took off. And amongst the leadership, there was heard complaints from the senior pastor that he was bothered that the church that the guy went to, not only that he left his church, but that the church he went to was not a Calvary chapel. And now he didn't make public these complaints. This was a private discussion he had where he was complaining about it. So he probably had the self-control. Maybe he reflected on it and was like, yeah, I shouldn't have that attitude. But at least to some people in that circle, it came out. He left and he didn't even go to a Calvary chapel. Like that was like a legitimate criticism that could be brought against him. To this, I just say, this is what happens to us. Calvary Chapel in its in its more infancy in the in the 70s and 80s they never would have said that they would have been so much more inclusive with other Christian groups but as any group progresses we tend to become more and more isolated and more and more segregated off from other Christian groups and this is not a healthy thing ultimately even though we feel like it protects us from error and we only hear from our select teachers and all that and there is some protection there unless you're the one in error in which case you're keeping people in it but yeah, we, we can't really do church like this. So they're, they they say we tried to prevent him because he wasn't following us, right? We're the officials, the, the disciples. We're the officials. We're the guardians of, you know, Christianity or of God's truth, that kind of thing. And um, this has got to be an attitude related to the whole greatest debate. Who's going to be the greatest amongst us? Like we're, we're the guardians, all this kind of thing. That's It's just not a biblical view. They might have thought we're the only really safe people. We're the only safe people. Like, it's not even a Calvary Chapel kind of a view. And this is this is not a godly view. The Holy Spirit has been at work amongst a variety of Christians throughout the history. And some of them are weird. And guess what? We might be some of the weird ones. Like, maybe I'm weird and don't know it, you know, because I'm used to me. So we, we need to have that godly attitude, that openness that happens there. there there's like a proper... Forgive me for using the word. For some of you are going to be bothered by this. But there's a proper ecumenical attitude that we should have as Christians. And... It doesn't include false teachings. It doesn't include embracing bad theology, but it does include embracing believers, genuine Christians who are just outside of our normal circle and who maybe we don't hold everything in common with. And that's a healthy, healthy Christian thing because we're just embracing the actual body of Christ when we do that. So this speaks to our general attitude of acceptance towards others. Like when I meet people, I'm not like, you better prove to me you're really Christian. You know, Instead, I, I take the posture of, you know what, I'm just going to assume you're a real believer unless I have good reason to think otherwise. Jesus says, you know, if he does a miracle in my name, he's not going to soon afterward. Maybe later, maybe way down the road he gets weird, but not right away. At least if right now he seems to be on the Christian side, then just embrace him as a brother and deal with fallout if it happens. I I think that this is a healthy attitude and it builds family and it builds community and it builds fellowship and it honors Christ because there's two errors we can fall into. One is where we embrace false teaching. and, And that's the thing I've always been really worried about right i don't want to embrace false teaching but there's another error we could fall into which is rejecting true brethren because we fear that they might have error uh, or that they might lead to error or something like that and there's some balancing that's got to go on here and i'm hoping that the scripture here gives us some wisdom to say like yeah if you know there's serious error then you know you, you need to back off of that but try to have as big of an umbrella of embracing believers as you possibly can as a Christian because Jesus certainly has a pretty big umbrella look at all the weirdos that are following him today (laughs) so it's not always easy but um but yeah seek wisdom on that so Jesus uh let's note something here in this passage um he says it's all about him right you know if anyone performs a miracle in my name he won't soon afterward be able to speak evil of me like this is entirely about Jesus Jesus is all about Jesus here and he's not ashamed of it because he really is that important. 
He knows it. It's not arrogant. This is right and good. It's all about Jesus. And Jesus knew that. Colossians tells us that all things were created through him and they're created for him. It's all about Jesus. Jesus says in John 14, 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So the exaltation of Jesus, even though he came humbly, his position or his place in the importance of creation, salvation, and devotion is never compromised in his earthly walk. So though he walked humbly, we know that while while we're seeking to be on equal par with each other and serve each other, Jesus is yet greater than all of us at all times. Um, no comparison. All right, verse 41. It says, For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. He will not lose his reward. This is, uh, this is cool. It's the contrast of the Pharisees, right? In Matthew, he was saying to the Pharisees, you're doing it for, for fame and for notoriety and to feel good about yourself. No reward for you. But here he says, but if you give even like just a cup of water, this, you're going to get a reward. So right, no reward versus reward. That's the contrast. But when Jesus uses a cup of water, we should understand back then, it's like when people came and you took them into your home and you gave them hospitality, if all you could give them is water, it's because you're poor and it's like you're embarrassed. Ah, oh, I got some water for you. But he's saying, even that, you will not lose your reward. There's a great reward for that. This is something that um, is really important for us to know. Any service, be it spiritual or physical, any service to Christians has an eternal reward. Now, here's what we often miss in this passage, in my opinion. I think a lot of people miss it entirely. This is not about service to all humans. It's about service to Christians in particular. He says, the, he qualifies, right? Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ. It's supremely important that they're Christians in this discussion of you will not lose your reward. Now, I think that Galatians 6.10 brings us home, and, I, and I, I've shared this a few times in my studies, but I think it's something the church has sometimes forgotten. It says, so then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Amen. Let us, do, let us help everyone as much as we can. This speaks to like the philanthropic efforts of Christians. Right? I want to help as many people as I can, but there's a caveat. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a thing here, especially to those who are of the household of faith. I want to help everybody, but especially I want to help Christians. Especially I want to build up and encourage and provide even philanthropic help to Christians. So often I see outreach organizations where it's the opposite. It's like we're going we're gonna, to um, put all of our help financially towards non-believers and we're going to kind of neglect believers. And now there might be a place for ministries where their primary outreach is to non-believers and they bring helps in you know, philanthropy. There might be a place for a ministry like that, but at least the church as a whole is to be focused on helping believers through hard times. I think that's the, that's the emphasis here. I wonder sometimes if our witnessing is confused, right? Jesus, you're thinking, oh, well, we'll do all our philanthropy for the world and then that will make them Christians. Well, Jesus said they'll know we're Christians by our love for one another, our love for one another. Galatians tells us, especially to the household of faith, Jesus says, because of your name as followers of Christ. So I think that this is important. We need to show the world that the family of God takes care of itself, takes care of their own people, not to some neglect or dis, uh, lack of care for others, but we do take care of ourselves. Consequently, these verses also that I'm sharing with you, they show that um, those who think that the church is supposed to be the welfare system for the world is incorrect. There are some who preach this. They think that all governments should stop any sort of welfare plans and that the church should take over welfare and that's how it's supposed to run. Um, and that's not, that's not what scripture seems to be supporting. Uh, you know, otherwise, how would you, how would you prioritize Christians in your help in these areas? 
All right, let's finish off this passage and we'll go to your guys' thoughts or questions. Um, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he'd been cast into the sea. Now this, this is pretty extreme. This is pretty extreme. Um, Any insignificant or seemingly insignificant believer is guarded by Jesus Christ and he will not only reward those who bless them, but he will mess up those who mess with them. Don't cause them to fall. That word fall there is the word stumble that we read. Um, one of these little ones in believe, who believe me to stumble, that word um, skandalizo in the Greek. It's also used in Mark 4.17. Same word there. Speaking of the, the soil that fell on, uh, excuse me, the seed that fell on the rocky soil. It says, and they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. That's that skandalizo. So this is, um, in this case, we when we say causing a believer, what does it mean to cause a believer to stumble? It, it, it seems like it could be a broad term that could refer to lots of things. In this case, it could be affliction or persecution. You could be causing a believer to stumble because you're harassing them. And so they become ashamed of their Christian faith and they're stumbling in their walk. It could also be leading them to some sort of sin. I think it's sort of a, a, a broad term. It could mean a few different things. Some would say that to cause them to sin here is, refers to a loss of salvation. And that is because in Mark, or excuse me, that's refuted, I think, in Mark 14, 27. Um, but there is one case for it. So I'll, pre- I'll present both sides. In Mark 14, 27, that same word is used where Jesus speaks of his disciples and says, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So Jesus uses the term to describe the disciples. Now you could say the disciples like lost their salvation when Jesus was crucified and they all ran and hid. Um, but I, I'm not inclined to think that that's the case. I don't think that, I don't think that those categories apply to these scenarios. I think it's just, we're, we're trying to force a topic to be answered by a text that's just not answering that topic in this case. Um, but I will say this in the same context in, uh, Mark nine forty three. Um, oops, let me get back there. In Mark nine, um, we have um, the same word used again. If your hand causes you to stumble, and the result is if it's stumbling you, the danger is you're you're going to potentially go to hell. And then if your foot causes you to stumble, then the danger is of course hell um if your eye causes you to stumble the danger is hell so in those cases it seems like this is a salvation issue i think that the word seems like it has multiple uses um so i i don't push on that that'd be my my opinion okay let's talk a little bit about the the whole millstone thing though let me get back to verse 42 and we'll cover that whole hand eye foot cutting off passage it's don't cut anything off your body for the next week i'll cover it next sunday (laughs) that's not what it means um Anyway, it says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe me to stumble. And then here's the consequence. It would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he'd been cast into the sea. This word millstone, it says heavy millstone in the translation because there's different kinds of millstones. There's a smaller millstone that like a woman would grind and she would do, use it with her own hands. Then there was a much heavier millstone. It could weigh over a ton and they would use animals to push this millstone around as it flattened out and crushed grain. Um, well, that's the millstone that's, that Jesus mentions, the big heavy one. So over a ton tied around your neck and thrown into the water. Now this probably seems unpleasant to most of us. The idea of being thrown into into the water with a millstone around your neck, but it's even worse than it sounds to their culture and their time. Because this means you get no burial. You're cast into the sea, meaning you get no proper Jewish burial. 
they, they would bury themselves in certain ways in anticipation of the resurrection. But now you don't get that. And so this is like bad. This is like bad, bad. And guess what? If you mess with Jesus's people, it's going to be worse than that for you. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus here, um, he is giving us a very real warning. If you are messing with and hurting other believers, it is it, you are in great peril. You're in great peril. Now, it will probably happen in the future. It's probably going to be some future judgment, not some present immediate thing, but you're in great peril. Note the, uh, the contrast, though, in verses 41 and 42. Whoever gives a cup of water to drink, he says he won't lose his reward. Okay, so you bless, you bless this little one, you won't lose your reward. And then verse 42, you, if you mess with them, you won't lose it, your punishment. That's the idea. This is interesting because this is kind of like Abraham. Uh, when God called Abraham, he said, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Jesus is effectively saying the same thing, but not to Abraham. To every Christian, no matter what their status is. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. But there's a big difference with Abraham. In Abraham, the blessings and cursings would have happened in this life on the earthly kingdom. But Jesus now establishing a heavenly kingdom, it's eventual blessings, it's eventual curses. It's It, it goes out to judgment day and not to something happening to nations in this world at this time. That's not the focus anyways. So I think um, to give you guys that, uh, our focus on how much we care about and take care of each other is huge. And this is good for our timing we're in today. Take care of the believers in your life that are around you, whether they seem super important to other people or not. Be around them, be calling them, be seeking to serve others right now during we're going through this whole coronavirus thing. See how you can bless other people. Bless them with your social media posts. Uh, help them w by reaching out, giving them something you have too much of and they have not enough of. You know, just take care of one another and bless each other in the name of Christ and prioritize the church as you do this. You will show your love to the world, I think. So the point here is Christians, let's, let's run after service, not power. Let's elevate the least and treat them like they're Jesus. And let's be a body serving one another in love, not like the world, lording over seeking self-aggrandization, uh, just self-promotion, but instead seeking to just honor Christ, serve him, and bless others with no concern for self. Uh, let's pray, and then we're going to go to your questions. Um, Lord, we pray that these words would sink into our hearts and that we would have a paradigm shift in how we view leadership and service and ministry to, to people, Lord, that wouldn't be like the world who they consider themselves more important if they're dealing with more important people or something like that. May we instead realize the incredible, immeasurable importance of every Christian. They're all part of the body. Immeasurably important. And may we treat them like Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so <clears throat> um, I'm going to go to your guys' questions. Usually when we do the, these things, this, uh, this Sunday night study at the church, we turn the camera off right now and we just go back and forth for like half an hour or so and we just talk there's no microphones for it um so there's nothing to record but but now we'll do it with you guys and by the way if you're watching and you're part of my sunday night crew who usually comes it's a small group with like 20 people i think um i miss you guys i wish we could gather and i look forward to uh, when we'll be able to do it again all right damien chomiak says does mark 942 um does that speak towards parents or others with influence over children or children of god Mark 942. Oh, I think little ones here is, is only uh, metaphorical for any Christian. I, any Christian at all of any anything, any rank you want to give them. That's all it means, any Christian. So it would apply to parents, it would apply to children, it would apply to grandparents, it would apply to um, 
neighbors, anybody in your congregation. Yeah, it would apply to anybody. Uh, Jacob Duncan says, I know it's commonly thought that Mark probably got his account from Peter. Going off of this, do we know who Luke got his gospel account from and how do we know this? Um, there, okay, the, the different thing with Luke, let me take you to the beginning of Luke. And let's let Luke tell us what, where he got his account. He says, in as much as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. In other words, um, Luke, he, he uh, used various eyewitnesses for his sources. So he has multiple accounts. Luke is probably aware of Mark's gospel, right? He, he, may, he may be aware of Matthew's as well. I don't know what else he might have been aware of. He also traveled with Paul. He did ministry with Paul for years and years. He it may have actually interviewed Mary like one-on-one, had a conversation with Mary, which might be why he has extra content about the young time, the young part of Jesus's life. So whereas Mark has a primary um, uh, primary source in Peter and then mentions names here and there that seem to indicate various other sources, uh, Luke has lots of primary sources, but he also mentions names. He mentions names that we don't have mentioned in other other books, like um, Herod's, uh, Herod's, was it Steward, Household Steward? I'm trying to remember her name right now, Joanna or something like that. And he mentions her, and if, if I'm remembering correctly, just randomly mentions her and then has information that it seems may have come from her. I'm trying to remember the details there. I think I got that right, possibly. Um, so I hope that helps. Um, uh, Jesus Luna says, my wife knows, uh, my wife likes to use that verse, whoever is not against us is for us. Whenever I bring up a false teacher like Joel Osteen, is that a correct way of using this verse? Thank you. Um, <clears throat> so there's two verses there that go hand in hand. One is um, whoever's not against us is for us. And the other one is whoever's not for us is against us. And these both are things Jesus said. I think that when Jesus makes these kinds of statements, he's what he's really ultimately doing is he's saying the world really is divided into two groups, right? Um, whoever's not against is for, whoever's not for is against. Now, when it comes to guys like Joel Osteen, it makes it it makes it a little more difficult to figure out what category they're in. Um, I haven't listened to a whole lot of Joel Osteen's content. Um, a lot of the stuff that I've heard him teach on a regular basis, I would say, was sub-Christian, sub-biblical to be, you know, as nice as I can, right? I'm like, yeah, that's just like. These aren't things you should be affirming. These aren't things you should be teaching people. Um, so in that sense, you know, perhaps maybe I could say Joel Osteen's in the camp of Christians. Really a believer. Maybe. I don't know. I haven't looked into his stuff enough enough to know. And if that's the case, then he's part of the 4S camp. But that doesn't mean that everything he does is approved. It doesn't mean we want to listen to him as a teacher. It doesn't mean there can't be discipline, say, uh, you know, church discipline to correct the issues that are going on. So, yeah, that's a challenging question. Um, I haven't listened enough to Joel Osteen to be able to comment, though, uh, more carefully on that. Flora20 says, thanks, Mike, for still doing the Mark series despite Corona. It's been useful. My question is on the transfiguration. A couple of weeks back, why did Jesus have an inner group of three? I get why he wouldn't reveal his glory to Judas Iscariot, but why only three? Some said it's because of the Trinity, but that confused me and help would be appreciated. That's a great question. I have to admit, I have not thought about it. 
Um, Jesus is going to be revealing himself on the Mount of Transfiguration. He only takes Peter, James, and John. That's it. Peter, James, and John. He doesn't take any of the others. Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess your guess is as good as mine. I mean, you could, we could, one way to answer questions like this is you just try to gather possibilities. Um, possibly he just had missions for the other nine to do. Uh, in fact, when they get back from the transfiguration, that whole event with the boy and they're not being able to cast the demon out that happened. It's, you know, because the nine were left behind, that was able to happen. That whole scene wouldn't have happened if he hadn't left the nine behind, it seems. So there's one possible reason. Um, another reason could just be that if all 12 of them had been there, it would have been chaos or it would have caused some sort of problem or confusion. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe by limiting it to the three, Jesus uh, continues to hold back the full revelation of who he is, right? Until after his death and resurrection, when all these stories are shared and everything clicks. Those are a couple possibilities. Let's see. Tim Z says, what advice do you have for how to interact with and respect leaders who act like they're greater than parishioners or other leaders in our own local churches and ministries? Um, my honest thought, Tim, is um, I don't really try to fix them. I just try to model Christ to them. And that's it. Um, now, I don't want to give leaders who act that way more leadership and more responsibilities. I don't want to, like, increase, if, if depending on how bad it is, I don't want to increase necessarily their their uh, authority. But I mostly I just try to model Christ to them because the reality is there are those, like the Hebrews passage said, there are those who will give an account. Like they're going to have to give an account for their, their leadership flaws and failures to God. And that is, it. like, think about it. That's serious. I have to give an account to God. You know, if I failed as a leader, I'm standing stand before God. That's enough. Uh, so yeah. Now, if, if you do have a voice with them and you think you can, you can pull people aside and try to minister to them. In which case I say, do it graciously. Like Galatians says, you know, do it considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Make sure to get that plank out of your eye first and then seek to help your brother or sister and not to, um, not to cause more problems. Uh, those are a few thoughts for you. Elaine Fifield says, um, when we do things for the brethren of Jesus, is he talking about his Jewish brethren? Some of my friends in the Hebrew roots movement say, this is what Jesus means. No, I don't think so. And I'll tell you why. Because Jesus, when he talks about his brethren, um, he uh, he seems to be talking about Christians in particular. And, and there's, there's, in, there's indications in several places. Probably the easiest is just to go to the very passage itself. So in Mark 9, he says... Um... <clears throat> Okay, the issue is there was a guy who was doing a miracle, what? In Jesus' name. There's a, a child you're receiving in his name, the name of the Messiah. And if you receive the one in his name, you're not only receiving him, but also the one who sent him. So these are Christians, right? Because not all the Jews received Messiah. So this can't be a Jewish thing. These are Christians that are being in, that are being questioned or talked about here. They're Christians. So I think probably the very passage itself indicates that those are talking about believers, not just Jews. Now, we're in Christ, and in Christ there is no Jew or Greek, so to say that we're going to import Jewishness into Jesus' words here seems to be refuted by that as well. All right. Um, Tim Feeney says, How can we put Jesus' teaching here into practice without hypocrisy, taking a low position just so that you will be first? Uh, P.S. Thank you for your ministry. It's a true blessing. Thanks, Tim. Um, that's encouraging me here. 
um, how do we how do we keep ourselves from from doing that thing where we where we're we're serving, but we're serving to be first because I want to be I want to be the best. Well, we realize our service is to glorify God and not for our own advancement. Um, I, I hope that helps. But but let me offer this. I was walking down the street, but we have two church buildings, right? I was walking between the two church buildings and I saw a piece of trash in the road and I had a little debate with myself. I thought, oh, I'm going to go pick up that trash. And then I thought, gosh, but what if someone sees me picking up the piece of trash and they think to themselves, he's just doing that so that I'll see him do it. And I realized I was considering not picking up this piece of trash to avoid someone thinking that I was picking up the piece of trash to look good. In other words, I was thinking of not doing a good thing in order to look good. And I was like, what is wrong with my head? Just stop and go serve. Like just stop and go serve. And in a sense, don't overthink it is my, is my encouragement. Don't hinder yourself from serving Christ because you're so worried about what could go wrong. Just serve him. Hope Kuhn says, did God deliberately make them confused about what Jesus said about his death to come so the plan would unfold? I think in some cases he did. I think in some cases we have it in scripture where, um, let me see, I think I can find the verse for you, Hope. And I say some cases because I'm not saying it applies to the disciples necessarily, but it applies to certain people um, where Jesus, uh, let's see, um, I'm thinking of the passage and looking for it here. Okay, so it's Colossians 2.8. 1 Corinthians 2.8. It's speaking of the wisdom of God in Christ's death, resurrection, sending his son and all that. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age had understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now that's interesting. So um, they still would have rebelled against God had they known what God was doing, but they wouldn't have helped the plan by crucifying Jesus if they knew this was going to accomplish God's plan and purposes. So by keeping them in the dark, he allows their rebellion against him to accomplish his goals. So if God's going to use your sin to accomplish his goals, that's part of his great wisdom. But it doesn't... Uh, anyways, this, this I think answers your question. He does deliberately make some people confused about what Jesus said about his death to come so the plan would unfold. Um, yes, that is the case. However, that doesn't mean everybody was in that situation of being deliberately confused. The only ones here it's talking about are the rulers of this age. So the leadership, they were, they were in the dark in particular. Uh, the disciples may have had more information than them, but still didn't seem to comprehend it because they just assumed Jesus had to rule and reign at his first coming. Matt Rehnquist says, If you lived in Jesus' time, would you have trusted in him for salvation or would you have put your trust in the leaders? If you say Jesus... What have you done now to prove this? Well, Matt, I, I mean, what am I supposed to say to that? I don't know how to predict what I would do if I had lived at a different time in the, in, in the world. Um, I would guess that I would trust in Christ because I did trust in Christ. That's the only thing I got to go on is I have trusted in Jesus. So I'm going to guess that I would trust in Christ. But, but yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know what else to tell you there. Um, so seeking the, seeking the kingdom, where did the disciples find doctrine regarding the role of the Messiah? Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Zealots? Any writings show how rabbis taught on the eve of Christ's ministry? Yeah, we do have a lot of interest, information. Which you, you're probably aware of some of it. We don't have much from Pharisees or Sadducees in particular. Sadducees, we 
almost everything we know about them we just know from the Bible because they just kind of went off the they just disappeared the Pharisees kind of turned into traditional Judaism over time so we have more of their content the Essenes we have their stuff from the Dead Sea Scrolls um, they had all sorts of expectations of the Messiah and we you can study that what were the what was the first century expectations of the Messiah and I've talked about this recently even I think it was even last week maybe two weeks ago in the video where I talked about some of the stuff that the Essenes said they thought the Messiah was going to come and kill the Caesar kill the Roman Emperor um, so there were some confusions going on there but we also have probably the best, you know, thing, which is the actual text of the Old Testament that tells us what, what was expected of the Messiah. How they all interpreted it, we do have information on that. Um, it's too much for me to try to rehash for you here. I will say this. they um, Even though some ancient rabbis did recognize that the Messiah was supposed to suffer, they, they didn't really put it together very well. It was really understood after the fact. All right. Angela... Uh, Budoin says, is it okay for a sincere, humble Christian to know inside that they are humble or does that negate the humility? You know, I was thinking about that recently because I heard a message by a pastor saying, the second you think you're humble, you're arrogant. I, I don't follow that entirely. There is a danger there. I mean, if I'm self-deceived about it. But, you know, it, it's not like, I, I, think I'm, I think I'm walking in humility. Does that, no, arrogance. Like, I... To me, this is weird, and this might lead to like some kind of weird paranoia in a Christian, uh, where you can never even acknowledge, even when you are doing something right or good, and that, boy, I'm really being selfless right now. Darn it, I ruined it. I'm not selfless anymore because I acknowledged it or recognized it, and I don't think that's entirely healthy. Ashley Armstrong says, if there, oh, let me give you an example. Moses wrote that he was the most humble person. <laughs> Moses wrote that. Now, some mock that, um, which I don't like. I think that actually strikes against the truthfulness of Scripture when you mock that phrase from Moses. But there's an actual illustration of how Moses was humble. He brought himself low because he was he was, um, he was was sitting next to Pharaoh. He was at Pharaoh's right hand, so to speak. And he left that and became nothing and nobody. And it's an example of his humility. And so he wrote that he was humble. Now, that is a picture of Christ who comes down from heaven to dwell amongst us as a man and that is the greatest act of humility. And he was aware of it, and yet it wasn't, it didn't negate the humility. All right, a couple more, and then we're going to call it a night. Ashley Armstrong says, if there are no ranks, then could I baptize a family member who won't leave the house? And would it count even though it's just me and that person? I think under certain situations, that's your best answer is just baptize your family member. Um, if you can get spiritual leaders involved, then I think you should. But if that's not working out for whatever reason, then personally, I don't. I don't think that you, I think there, I think that's the exception to the norm is some situations and yeah, but I do think we should, if possible, involve local Christians, um, a local fellowship, involve all them in this process because baptism is meant to be a public proclamation of your faith in Christ, not just a private event. And so we want to do that ideally. Dave McDreamy says, what clever self-isolation strategies is the Winger family doing to keep saying these days? My kids are going crazy. God bless them. It's still winter here. Uh, well, we don't have kids. We just have cats. So that part is a lot easier for us than for others. Yeah, we're 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 pretty self-isolated. We live in uh, L.A. County. And so our county in particular is being pretty strongly affected. And so we're just kind of trying to stay out of it all. And I think that that's wisdom. And we're the only thing I'm willing to go out for right now is if I have any um, either older or immunocompromised person in my life who needs an errand run, I'll go run it. Most of them won't ask you, though, because that's the way humans are. <laughs> so hopefully 
you know, by staying in touch with them, I can be aware of their needs and hopefully meet them. Let's see. Uh, Yehoshua is mighty God <clears throat> says question. Should we also submit to women leading or preaching in a church? Should we leave that church? Um, let's say that my understanding of complementarianism is correct. And you have someone in a role that is actually ungodly, like that they're not supposed to be in. I would not sit in the church and actively rebel against that person in that role. Um, if that was the case and you feel like you have to leave, then you should leave. Otherwise, I think you should recognize and honor the roles that are there because you're not only coming against them, you're coming against the role itself. That's my two cents for what it's worth. Take it with a pound of salt because that's a complicated situation. Brother Dave says, is verses 1 through 11 relevant to verses 16 through 19 in Mark 16 or does all does uh, that passage apply to all believers? Hey, Dave, let me give you a little preview for what we're going to do when we get to Mark 16 in a while now. When we get there, I'm going to cover serious questions about whether or not several of the verses in Mark 16 belong in the gospel of Mark in the first place. This is not whether we should take them out of our Bible. That's not the question. The question is whether they are actually part of the inspired canon of scripture in the first place. That's the question. And so I'm going to tackle that when we get there and I'll wait um, until then because it's going to be a complicated topic. So I, I hope that I'll, that'll help you guys out. So thank you guys. I'm doing another live stream on Tuesday at 5 p.m. The typical time I'm going to be interviewing uh, Wesley Huff, and we're going to be talking about um, weird, modern nuttiness about early church history and, and, and first century Christianity, where they talk about how Mary Magdalene was like the wife of Jesus and other various things that people just like to believe, it seems. Um, we're going to talk about that kind of stuff. But know this, the, the Mark series, and remember, my name's Mike, but this is the Mark series, and the whole series is available in the video description down below if you want to watch it all. You're welcome to watch it all. We'll pick up next week and we'll talk about one of the hardest passages in the Gospel of Mark. Until then, Lord bless you. Thank you so much for joining me. And I, uh, I pray that you keep your devotion life strong. Meet with your church as digitally as much as possible. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And let's be the light of the world in the middle of the dark time.